love thy neighborhood. Okay. Oh, cool. Oh, definitely. <laughs> awesome. Discipleship and missions. Mission. For, For modern, modern times. It can be attractive to be charming. You know, I like to be charming, but the real charm is exactly what you're saying. It comes from knowing oneself and being comfortable with oneself. Maybe that's an easier word for some of us to handle than confident. I think it's okay to be confident in yourself, but maybe comfortable with yourself is a good alternative. This is a show about self-discovery. About understanding ourselves. About looking into the mirror to see the good, the bad, and the unknown of who we are. This is about how we relate to God and everyone else. From Love That Neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome. 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 To the Enneacast. Hey, welcome to the Enneacast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Lindsay Lewis. Every episode, we walk you through the Enneagram and we help you build better relationships. And today, we are continuing our series on the nine desires. If you haven't already, go back, listen to episode 85 with Kurt Thompson to hear some of the foundation we built around exploring our desire. In every episode, we are going to start with two foundational ideas. First, God created humans to desire. That's what we're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And number two, our desires are drawn toward what we find beautiful. Yeah, we can't not desire mm-hmm. and we can't not move towards whatever we find yes. to be just amazing and captivating. Yes. So in this episode, we are going to focus on the desire to be wanted and to be loved. This desire to be wanted is closely tied to a desire for identity and for relationships. I'm searching for who I am, and specifically who I am in relationship to all these people around me. Who do they say that I am? Mm -hmm. So if this really resonates with you, you may be a type two or a member of the heart triad, or that just might be one of your top core desires and you might not be a type two. Yeah. And here's the deal. Like, I think there's really kind of no way around the fact that all of us as people, we want to be wanted. Yes. We want to be loved. Exactly. We want, you know, uh, Lisa Fisher says we all come into the world looking for someone looking for us. Mm. Like, there's just that sense that we've all felt the pain of not being wanted or being rejected Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. feeling not lovable. And it's, that's an ache. And so God made us to be wanted. He made us to be loved. Yes. And so that being said, when we talk about this desire to be wanted and to be loved, we need to think ab- about it through three lenses. What happens when the desire to be wanted becomes exaggerated? Mm-hmm. What happens when the desire to be wanted becomes diminished? And what happens when the desire to be wanted is actually healthy? Right. So first, let's talk a little bit about what the desire to be wanted and loved looks like when it's exaggerated, supercharged. There was a fire there. Gasoline got thrown (laughs) on it. It has gotten much bigger. It's a little out of control. What's going on? So that's what we're talking about, the false self. Whenever we take our core desire or even our core virtue and we begin to white knuckle it, you know, that's how I think of it. It's just like we're holding onto it so tightly. That's when the false self appears because it says you know what, maybe you can't be fully wanted and loved. And so let's settle for something that feels like it 
And in this case, it's going to be the feeling of being indispensable. You know, well, they might not deeply love me, but at least they need me. You know, mm-hmm. I need they need me to be around. So when this is happening, we will use helpfulness to manipulate and to people please in order to feel needed, to feel mm-hmm. wanted, to feel like we're welcome in the room. And we'll be driven by pride, which isn't your typical just like puffed upness. It's the idea that I don't have any needs and desires and you do. And I am the person to meet those needs. Mm -hmm. So we'll be driven by this pride to repress our own needs. And that is actually eventually going to lead to anger and shame. Mm-hmm. And those two are just going to play catch back and forth. I'm so angry. No one cares about me. No one returns. No one says thank you. But then I'm so ashamed that I even felt that way because my whole purpose in life is to be helpful. Mm-hmm. And this is not just for this desire. There are other desires this is absolutely true with yeah. as well. But when we have a desire to be wanted, so we then in turn begin to behave in ways that mm-hmm. we think will attract people to us yeah. so that they will want us. And then we get to a point of fatigue because we realize we've hooked everybody on this behavior. I act this way and I do these things and I serve everybody. But the reality is like we've kind of sold them a product. We haven't really shown up as our true selves. We've shown up as I fill this role. I do this thing for you. And now you need me. It leads to a place where there's there's not an authentic intimacy in those relationships. So we're haunted by this thing, right? We want to be wanted. Yeah. But we think, well, I am wanted, but I'm wanted because of these things I do. Right. And so even when our head hits the pillow, we go, I I don't really truly actually feel wanted. Yeah. I don't Uh, really feel loved. Yeah. Like at the end of the day, if I could do nothing, Mm -hmm. if, you know, I really didn't have the ability, would anybody care? Mm -hmm. (laughs) All of us, we want to be wanted. So listen, when we when we talk about exaggerating the need to be wanted. It becomes huge to us. We really need to back up. We need to talk a little bit about where does that come from? Yeah. Because really what we're talking about is that there's a fear. There's a fear that I'm not actually wanted. Mm -hmm. There's a fear that I'm not actually loved. What's going on with that? Well, we have to go back and we have to explore something happened in your childhood. Yeah. Those of us who long to be wanted and cherished unconditionally may have experienced themes of neglect, themes of unfulfilled needs, received the message that you shouldn't have your own needs. Your needs are irrelevant. Everybody else, you need to pay attention to theirs because we will only want you and love you if you're paying attention to everybody else's needs and not your own. And the greater that fear is, the greater the fear is that you're going to be rejected. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants you. Nobody loves you. Um, that fear comes in and just supercharges everything. You're going to be tempted to exaggerate your pursuit of love, uh, to, to overcompensate for whatever you think you lack. And ultimately, that will lead to you're going to begin to commit behaviors and relational patterns that you will later feel ashamed about but you feel as though you had no choice because that was the only way you were going to get what you needed. Yeah. And I think in a way, you know, especially when I think of a type two or any of us who have a lot of this sort of energy going on within us, I think about how much shame we do carry because we're we're looking for that identity. We're looking for relationships. And so I think the good thing about looking at your childhood story and just your formative years in general and saying like, where did I get this message actually can 
kind of release some of that pressure, the shame that, you know, that the shame pressure that we're feeling Mm -hmm. because it says, you know, like, A, you kind of came into the world like feeling that way, you know, and then B, something happened. It might not have been huge. It could be very small and even innocent. But somehow you got the message that this was the way to get your needs met in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, it could be as simple as your caregiver saying, oh, your mommy's little helper And maybe you felt a little invisible the rest of the day, but when you got to be mommy's helper, Mm -hmm. you felt significant. You felt like you had a place. Mm -hmm. So it could be as innocent as that. I heard somebody say that uh, children are incredible observers and horrible interpreters. Yes. And so uh, to your point, yeah, it could be this thing where mom or dad made this comment or brother or sister made this comment. And it was like, oh, that was like, you know, it was like cocaine. It was just like incredible. Like that feeling is amazing. Whereas someone who doesn't have this core desire would be like, I don't care. I want to play Nintendo. Mm -hmm. Like I don't want to be mommy's helper, Mm -hmm. you know, or it could be all the way to trauma, like Mm -hmm. all the way to like really severe things happening to you. So I just want people to feel that freedom to go ahead and look back because in a way it takes the pressure off of you got here for a reason. And it's not any one person's fault, yours or your caregivers, mm-hmm. you know, but it's still worth it to try to untangle it a little bit. Mm-hmm. So if you're living in that fear that you're going to be unloved, left behind, completely forgotten, here is the question to ask, you know, what happened in your youth where you felt neglected, you know, where you felt completely unneeded? And what's a small step you can take today to acknowledge that wound and begin the work of letting it heal? Because, again, we're going to say it every episode, what goes unhealed goes septic. You know, when we refuse to look at it, we can't let God in there to heal it. Yeah, yeah. So, again, when we talk about an exaggerated desire, we are saying it's when we take a good thing and we make it ultimate. Yeah. We expect it to do something it's not built to do. Okay, second, let's talk about what the desire to be wanted and loved and cherished unconditionally, what that looks like when it's diminished. So these folks are just like, I don't particularly care, yeah. uh, you know, whether folks love me or want me around or whether I'm, you know, celebrated in any way. It doesn't particularly matter to me w- yeah. what's going on there. It's not hard to picture those two people in your mind. There's the person who really cares and there's the person who's like, I do not care, like mm-hmm. to the extreme. Mm-hmm. So the basic rule that we're talking about is when any desire is exaggerated, all the other desires are either serving it, you know, like you're you help me, you're a wingman. Or they're slain by it. They're completely diminished or cast out from their view. So someone who doesn't really value what other people think and being loved and included and wanted, that's because they have a different desire that is so big. You know, it's the speck in their eye that they they're not even looking at this desire. Mm -hmm. So if you look at your own life and you're like, I just don't feel a lot of that. I don't really have a certain longing to be wanted. I don't really have a longing to be loved. Uh, I don't particularly even feel like I need to make others feel wanted or make others feel loved. I don't really want it for myself. I don't particularly care Mm -hmm. about it for other people. Think about a few things. Ask yourself why. Do you worry that if you acknowledge your own desire to be wanted and loved, that in some way it's going to impact what other people think of you? Mm -hmm. Do you worry that in some way uh, the desire to be wanted is going to somehow restrict your freedom? Somebody's going to take advantage of it? Mm -hmm. Oh, if people know that I actually want to be wanted or loved, 
They'll manipulate me yeah. or they'll use it against me. Uh, or I shouldn't want that. I've got Jesus. I shouldn't mm-hmm. even articulate mm-hmm. you know, those things. Or do you worry that in some way pursuing being wanted and making others feel wanted, that it's a threat to your security, your yeah. resources, your energy. But in some way, you have to explore, does this desire, if it's low, do you feel like it's a threat to your identity, a threat to your freedom, or a threat to your security? Yeah. So finally, let's talk about what the desire to have love, to be wanted, looks like when it's healthy. So our guiding principle, straight from the Bible, is that Jesus has told us what our chief desire should be. You know, the purpose of life, the desire to lead all others should be to love God and to love other people as we love ourselves. Yeah, the the pursuit of loving and being loved. Yeah. So when the desire to be wanted and cherished is healthy, it shows up as our true self in Christ. We are hidden in Christ with God as people who are deeply beloved. Uh, when this desire is coming through the true self, you know, it shows up as generous and compassionate service of other people. Yeah. It shows up as, gosh, I'm so grateful for all the ways that my community shows me they love me. Mm-hmm. I want to respond in kind. I'm so grateful for all the ways that God in practical action and word mm-hmm. and deed shows me he loves me. I want to respond in kind to him and to other people. So you're able to receive God's unconditional and deep love for you. Mm -hmm. And then that overflows out of you and you in turn want to give it away to other people as well. Right. And because of that confidence, you know, when you are truly filled up, which we've said this before, but for people with this, you know, core desire, they often have to find that alone. So even though we are highly committed to community, that's a big piece of what we do here. Um, for people with this desire, you might need to get away mm-hmm. to really find that fuel that is coming straight from God. And whenever you are filled up with it, you're able to walk in humility. And that just means having a realistic view of yourself that includes boundaries and needs and asking for help. Mm-hmm. So you're living with that ability to, I'm I'm actually great at serving. I love serving. I love baking cookies for my community group. I love helping people out in whatever way I can. But also, I'm going to make sure that I'm having rest, that I'm nourishing my own body, things like that. I'm able to walk with that balance. And then we live in a way that serves and befriends others and allows them to do the same. Mm-hmm. So it's always this give and take with God of like going back to him to be refueled, only pouring out the excess, Mm -hmm. you know, and then the same with friendships. I'm pouring into my friendships in a way, though, that encourages them to give back to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's really amazing. If you um, if you look at the scriptures, you look at the gospels, there's this correlation, right, where we would think the more demands placed on Jesus, Mm -hmm. the less that he's going to go spend time alone because he's got more to do. That's how we do things. Right. Mm -hmm. I can't spend time alone. I got things to do. People need me. But that's actually the exact opposite of what we see. What we actually see is that as time goes on, the more demands that are placed on Jesus, the more that we continue to see the generosity. We continue to see the service, but we also see him withdraw. And we also see him uh, go and just spend time alone with the Lord because those are the moments in which we're not serving. We're not proving ourselves. When we're by ourselves uh, and it's just us and God, There is no means by which we are trying to woo somebody into seeing us and wanting us. We are instead living in the reality, 
I'm already seen, I'm already wanted just as I am without doing all these other things. So those are our notes on the desire to be wanted and loved, but we want to hear from someone that identifies with this desire as one that is a core driving desire in their personality and in their life. So today we have Andrew Greer with us. Andrew Greer is an eight-time Dove Award-nominated singer-songwriter, producer, author, television host, and podcast host. Andrew co-created and co-hosts the popular television and streaming series Dinner Conversations with Mark Lowry and Andrew Greer, as well as the podcast Bridges with Patsy Claremont and Andrew Greer, Spiritual Connections Through Generational Conversations. He's also the author of Winds of Heaven, Stuff of Earth, Spiritual Conversations, inspired by the life and lyrics of Rich Mullins. He lives and works in Nashville, Tennessee, and is a type two on the Enneagram. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you so much, Jesse and Lindsay. Glad to be here. Yeah, we are excited mm-hmm. to talk with you. You are like the embodiment, by the way, of like the gig economy. Like the, your, <laughs> your things that you are involved in are amazing, yeah. and there are so many of them. Uh, we love, <laughs> we love too, like just seeing just so much collaboration Mm -hmm. in your work Uh too, which is like a real, you know, that's a testimony to your personality, I think. I do love collaboration and I'm learning to love respite. And so when you were reading Mm -hmm. that, I was thinking of how much space I've been creating over the the past year or so. It's been a shift Mm -hmm. to me, but yes, you keyed in on collaboration. Yeah. I I love that. I also have to say that the nineties adolescent in me was thrilled I was, you know, searching you on the web, watching uh-huh. all your things, and I was like, Point of Grace, Andy yeah. Grant, oh my gosh, my heart, my heart has wings. These are all my favorite people from... I still feel like an adolescent sometimes. Uh, same thing. I mean, I was growing up in the 90s, and so when I've worked with these people, and, and some have become very close friends. So let's start here. So in Enneagram Theory... The core desire for the type two is to be wanted or loved. And, and in particular, if you think of it, you know, unconditionally, mm-hmm. I don't have to earn it. It's not something that I've got to do like a, the dog and pony show yeah. or that I've got to prove my value. It's like I want unconditional love. The two does not want to be expendable. They don't want to be dispensable. Does this resonate with you? And do you have an early memory that reflects that desire? Hmm. That's a great question. It definitely resonates with me. I mean, it can even even go back to what we were just talking about with collaboration. I mean, part of that is a need to be wanted and to be used and to be um, of a resource, you know, to someone Mm -hmm. uh, finding my value in that being needed. uh, There's the positive side of collaboration. There's community. There's our, our absolute core need for everybody to be in association with others, to lean and depend on others in healthy ways. But there's also the weakness side of it, the kind of vice side of it. And that is, it also keeps me being needed. You know what I mean? And Mm so I'm Mm -hmm. still learning. I feel more confident in my skill sets and abilities and contributions to everything from personal relationships to professional work 
now than I ever have before, but I find myself still placing myself under other people's thumbs. Or that's what it feels like now. I think it used to feel like I was being needed by someone and now it feels like being used. And I'm realizing that has less to do with other people and more to do with a change in me. But Mm. I mean, one of my earliest memories had to do with childhood abuse. And I don't know if that scenario curated, it was a, a kind of unique scenario in that while I didn't have control of it, I probably could have had control of it. You know, the, the areas of manipulation uh, over me were, it was just real nuanced. And so I wonder, it's like how much was our personality in us from the beginning and how much was mm-hmm. curated over time through both positive and negative things. And I do wonder if there's an element of being used that in a toxic way that is still linked to that scene when I was four and five years old. And mm-hmm. so that's my earliest memory of like it in a, in a being pulled into a direction that I didn't know how to say no to. I didn't know, you know, I didn't have the power to whatever. And there's all kinds of therapy. I mean, that's a heavy subject. There's a lot of therapy and counseling in that that can correct the thinking or retrain the thinking that was born out of that. But even in positive, so in a more positive manner, so there's that um, side by side with, as I got into elementary school and even middle school, music was always one of my loves. I loved a lot of things, but uh, I did love music. And my, my mother's a classical organist. My dad's a therapist, so really cool people. But we lived in a, a really small community, a very tight community. And that was by their decision. They had these real metropolitan professions, but loved the quiet mm-hmm. life. And so um, that was a real cool contrast. But I loved music. And my mom started all my brothers, I have two older brothers, started us in piano lessons uh, when we were seven, because that's kind of when you could independently read and do your thing. And I just took off with it. I loved it. I just never stopped playing. And she just stopped teaching me and just kept buying me books. Well, mm. the the music director at school when I was like in third or fourth grade at the junior high would have me accompany the junior high performances uh, because I was kind of developing quickly in that one area. And I remember loving the sense of supporting in that way. Like I I loved the sense of being able to be around older kids and adults and it helped me rise to the occasion, if you will. But um, I also liked the ability that music gave me to begin to support others kind of shining moment you know what i mean yeah yeah yeah. here's the thing you know when you're talking about that that early you know really horrible childhood memory in a lot of ways you're saying your specific expression i think of what we see over and over again which is that all of us in some way in some capacity feel like something was stolen from us as children Mm -hmm. and and that we so often spend the rest of our life sort of you know scrambling to try to to piece it back together. And there's goodness in that and there's darkness yeah. in that. And it's, you know, it's very intertwined. Like, so when you start talking about like uh, getting to music and you get into supporting people mm-hmm. and like, I mean, those are a thousand micro doses mm-hmm. of love and affection. And, you know, <laughs> yes. like being uh, so wanted, like. Absolutely. Oh. Yeah. And, 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 you know, in Enneagram theory, I mean, the basic idea is like whatever the thing is that we feel like was taken from us when we get it, I mean, it, 
it kind of hits us in a, in like uh, in a way that like I don't even know what to compare it to. You know, yeah. The, yeah. cocaine is not cocaine <laughs> is not even as strong as you know the uh, feeling getting of the thing you getting really the want. thing that yeah. we long for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's it, and you know we don't have the context or the ability in young ages yet to contextualize. You know, we don't we don't have the resources sure. to understand why do I want so much, you know, and, and for me, you know, and I think this probably isn't totally unusual, but again, like you, like you said, you know, Jesse, we all have these things that kind of scramble us up in our younger years. It's just kind of a a part of living. Um, None of us escape totally unscathed, you know? And so in that we have to figure out the puzzle pieces and and put some things back together of our own volition if we choose to, or we turn into really, really unhealthy people who do really unhealthy things to other people as well. So, you know, there's a, there is a beauty in coming out of brokenness uh, that can be good for future generations and just for our neighbors around us. But, Mm -hmm. you know, for me, the messages that were delivered to us through some harmful things, where does that intersect or override what our personality already was or how it, you know, did it shift things, whatever. But, you know, so maybe I always had compulsive, you know, like kind of behavior in me. I, I don't know if I'm intense. I think I'm fun, but I can be really <laughs> like, you know, really focused. And so maybe that's just part of my personality, but that, like you said, that kind of dopamine hit or whatever it is when it was like, oh, you know, I could be wanted because I have something to give. Like if I have something to offer, if I can do something for someone else, whatever, that feels like love. That feels really strong. That real strong connection that turned into then in my young adult life, very, very unhealthy behaviors with addiction laced all over it, you know, and Mm -hmm. then having to really hit head on, I'm going to, die (laughs) if i don't think through these things if i don't stop and pause if i don't check myself and do that with professional help so it it wasn't so i kind of cleared the path you know what i mean of all this Mm -hmm. ancillary stuff behavior is just right it's just the expression of some deep-seated need that's gone awry and so until i paved the way with some professional help and therapy and, and some that i'll have to do my entire life or you know keep in check my entire life uh, not till then could I get to the root and weigh like, why do I need so much? Is it normal? Is it not normal? Is it healthy? Is it not unhealthy? But then how do I need it? How do I get what I need? And how can I do that healthily and being needed? The two's kind of desire to be needed and being needed equaling being loved. How can I separate those? So I, I had to pave the way. Sometimes I think it's important for us to realize we got to do some work. We got to do some clearing house. We can't yeah. just be in the middle of our toxic behaviors and then turn on a podcast and go, okay, tomorrow. Okay. this I got it now. It, it Maybe it, it turns on a light bulb or whatever, but then we've got to move forward in seeking the help of others, whether that's our community, whether that's a counselor, whether that is a deeper dive into some research and some books and literature, whatever it is that can provide the resource for us to then know ourselves better. Like self-awareness is not being obsessed with ourselves. It's not conceited. It's not, you know, there's a great humility in actually submitting ourselves to self-awareness so that, you know, um, how can I die to myself if I don't know myself? 
You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. So I, I, I know I've taken a lot of paths there, but I just, it's not an overnight process and that is more than okay. And in fact, I think it mm-hmm. might be a forever process. You know what I mean? Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Well, stay with us because when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Andrew Greer. We'll be right back. Here at LTN, we're all about helping people build better relationships. And we've actually created a brand new way to do that with our Say More conversation cards. Say More is a deck of 100 questions to kickstart engaging discussions. So there's silly things like, which famous cartoon character are you most like? And there's also serious things like, what has been your hardest goodbye in life? You can use our Say More cards with your family, your friends, on a date, at the office. My family and I have been using them at the dinner table, and I've learned things about my kids that I truly never knew before. To grab your own deck of Say More cards, go to lovethyneighborhood.org and click the store link at the top of the menu. And while you're there, grab a couple more decks. They make great gifts for Christmas or birthdays, and all proceeds go directly to support Love Thy Neighborhood. So, Go to lovethatneighborhood.org and click store and get ready to say more because better relationships are just a question away. All right. Hey, welcome back to the Uniontcast. Jesse Eubanks. Lindsay Lewis. We have been talking with Andrew Greer. Uh, Andrew, let's let's talk about this. Because type twos feel so much shame around having their own desires because desires mm-hmm. feel selfish to a lot of twos, many twos end up failing to acknowledge their desires. And we end up seeing that decision come out mm-hmm. sideways. Mm-hmm. You know, they become angry, they become manipulative, exhausted. They're, <laughs> they have a lot of health problems. They generally just sort of start neglecting themselves. Ultimately, though, we see in a lot of twos, they're giving to others what they actually want for themselves. So that was my long way of asking this question. (laughs) What words of advice or warnings would you have for other type twos about the importance of recognizing your desires and needs? And what is at risk when you don't? Hmm. I think the risk is some of the things you named. I think uh, physical and mental health, you know, is at risk. And I think it's a real risk, so it can be heated seriously that I could be at the disposal of helping others. You know, my my own health could be at the disposal of helping others. And and if I think about it that way and look at it that way, that doesn't sound right, does it? Like service to others should produce a humility that is actually life-giving, not life-destroying. And so I think something to weigh out, I don't know if I'm totally going to answer your question, but is what is the motivation of my service to others? Like, what does my service to others look like? Is it true service? And we all have, you know, all of our serving is can be laced with ulterior motives, any personality. But I think the two types do have to look at that a little more significantly uh, because of some of their boundary issues. And so I can attest to the negative effects of not taking care of myself Overall, I'm a have always been a very healthy person. Don't get sick a lot, but I'm getting older. I'm 40, which just naturally requires some different self care to maintain um, optimal health. You know, to enjoy living in your body, 
And so then as a two, I've really started to see the toll of that if I don't watch out. And and that doesn't help anyone. It doesn't perpetuate service to others. That's the thing I always think about. If I'm hurting myself in the effort to help someone else, I'm actually not perpetuating my ability to help, which means I'm actually going against some of even my unhealthy desires, you know, in my personality. So if I if I've heard the twos being related when I've seen Enneagram types related to people throughout history that you would know just kind of generically like, you know, a president to a type eight or something. Two of the famous people that twos have been related to are Jesus and Mother Teresa, which mm-hmm. <laughs> which I wholly own and, and absolutely love. I was like, aha, we are. And uh, you're like, you're like, no wonder our deadly sin is pride. I mean, we're being <laughs> like compared Jesus. to Jesus and Mother Teresa. I'm like, what do you want from me? So I just think the more saint that is in someone, the more sinners in someone. You know, it's like they're not striking. We're not striking that balance well. So we can be really incredible givers and really incredible lovers. And I think people really want to be in our company and also will ask us for help. There's a lot of saint in that, you know, there's a lot of goodness in that. I mean, one of the pictures I love, and this can be super cheesy, but of Jesus, the best is years ago, you know, when that book, The Shack came out and everyone was reading mm-hmm. it. So of course I wasn't, and I'm more of a contemplative <laughs> reader anyway. And I was like, Mah. but my mom kind of wanted to read it, but she, she, someone had given it to her. She gave it to me and said, here, you read it and tell me if I should read it, which I was like, ah, and I love assignments though. Right. I mean, total two. I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. So for you, I'll read it. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I read it and I actually found it to be a, a fairly profound um, narrative, but in it, Jesus, of course, is this Hispanic kind of carpenter dude. And the main character who of course is you know reeling from an extremely traumatic event and some deep sadness is out on the end of a dock and he's laying on his back looking up at the stars at night and all jesus does you know at least it's depicted in this book is he just goes down walks down the dock and lays on his back beside him and i think i try to keep that picture in my mind as the potential goodness of my personality type, I do think we're really good at being with people in their pain. And I think that's a really beautiful thing in a culture that prides highlighting a lot of injustice and pain, but doesn't sit with people in the middle of injustice and pain. And so Mm. I, I want to cultivate that, but cultivate it in a way that once we get up from that dock and walk on, I don't need anything else from that person. I don't need any reciprocation of some sort. The act of being with someone or the opportunity to be with someone and to inhabit those spaces together in those tender, intimate places, that that's what I was designed to be good at and just do that. <laughs> and and I don't need and I don't need anyone to credit me in their liner notes that I did it. You know, I don't mm-hmm. I don't need whatever the the toxic flip side is of that and that I would take care of myself to a level that I have the energy to do it so that when I get up, maybe it can be exhausting to be with people in emotional spaces and twos diminish that all day long, that it can take so much energy and you have to have renewal and renewal of self-care. So 
I don't think I answered any of your question, Jesse, but the, <laughs> I think self-care is so important. All my closest friends, all my closest counsel, the thing they always come back to when I'm in a pickle is self-care. You know, have you made lunch today? <laughs> you know, like people yeah. feed themselves. It's normal. Do it. Yeah. You know, totally um, are you sleeping eight hours? You know, and it's not that I can't sleep. It's that I'm up till one finishing something and I have to be up at seven, you know, whatever. So mm-hmm. self-care for any personality is extremely important. I think for the two, they have to literally challenge themselves. It feels like walking, you know, through saran wrap or something. You, you just have to push through until self-care feels normal. Mm-hmm. That's so good. So uh, we noticed a theme in your resume around collaboration Ooh, resume. and storytelling. <laughs> yeah, you're uh, Was that on LinkedIn? <laughs> <laughs> no. Just as we were hunting you down on the internet, um, but we specifically saw a lot of collaboration and storytelling with people of an older generation. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us, you know, what are some of your desires behind those things? That's a great question, Lindsay. I, in good, good recognition, I have always loved older people. I mean, I have, you know, a strong community of peers and, and I love young. And, and now as I'm becoming a little older, you know, uh, they're just some really cool kids, my nieces and nephews and my cousins who live in town, their kids are graduate high school now. I mean, I'm so thrilled to be a part of their lives. So I'm getting to start to taste what being on the other side of that is. And, and they think I'm pretty cool, mm-hmm. which is cool. But, um, <laughs> I think my draw to older generations is part of wanting to emulate what they embody. And I think some things you only embody through living long enough, but there's a patience uh, that they embody that I really want to Mm -hmm. inhabit, you know, in my own personality, there's um, kind of a pacedness that it doesn't always have to be slow. There's just a pacing out. And I think as you get older, you have to pace out because of energy levels and such. And so there's a real beauty to that because they have time for people. You knock on their door, you can sit on the porch a while and talk with them. They don't, mm-hmm. they're not thinking about the other two or three things that they need to get done in that hour, or they're able to forget them, you know, whichever yeah. it is, <laughs> which is really brilliant. You know, I, I'm starting to forget some things and I'm like, this is awesome. I mean, I feel nothing about it because I forgot about it, you know? So um, I think that's always been part of my draw. I also just think that's part of being a spiritual person. I think generations is key to being a full-bodied kingdom. And so the kingdom of God, it's not one-dimensional. And age is part of three-dimension. So do I like older people more than I like my peers? Nah. Do I like them better than I like kids? No. But do they have a lot to offer? Yes. And I think I also am drawn to older generation. We're also drawn to younger generation. They happen mm-hmm, to think there's a mm-hmm. lot to learn from someone 30, 40 years their junior. And and it also reminds them of that pep in their step that's been, you know, they, they don't have the physical energy more, but they still got the mental spirit, you know, or whatever. So I think it's just a spiritual, basic, foundational thing. I also think there's a level of humility in it to walk the road with people who've walked it before me because it submits me to a certain broader perspective. Like I'm all harried and and kind of, you know, tied up in knots about 
my little narrow myopic view of today. And I think when you're in the company of older people who've lived it in their own way before, you know, your shoulders kind of relax and, and your eyes, you know, kind of widen because you're like, oh, it, it's, there's a big world out there and there's a lot of experiences to have and to be had. And it doesn't make what I'm experiencing now meaningless. It actually makes it more meaningful that it's part of this bigger picture. And I, I just think older people tap into that for us a little better. And, and I think they're naturally humbled. I've been reading this book called Learning Humility by Richard Foster. And I'm reading that right now. You are? Crazy. Yes. Okay. Do you, I, I don't know if you like it. I, I love it. I really like it. About halfway through, but to your point though, it is fascinating to read it because he's gotten much older. And in the book he talks about where he used to write eight hours a day, he can only write about two. Yeah. And then his brain is tapped out. And you can see it in his writing style. It's really fascinating mm-hmm. because there's all these moments of wisdom. And what's also fascinating too is all, how many times this sage of wisdom, and he gets to the end and he goes, I'm not sure about this. I'll think on it. Like he says that <laughs> totally. five, 500 times in the book. There's a lot of humility in that, but there's also a lot of age that has produced that humility. And, and you know, we were talking earlier, since we're, since we're talking about the book, I had this part where he was talking about worm theology because uh, y'all were talking about how sometimes our, our religious background can produce this like you said, kind of annihilation of ourselves or, you know, totally discounting ourselves. And, and one beautiful part of this book, which really is Richard Foster's journal about humility over the course of a year or so, um, is how he continues to reframe humility. Not only does he do that, but through the resources he's thinking through that humility is different than thinking low of oneself. And in fact, he said here, like, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, I think that's how you pronounce it, but he had written a lot about humility way back when, I mean, um, historic, and he had written, humility is a virtue by which a man has a low opinion of himself because he knows himself well. And while, you know, Richard suggests that maybe that Bernard didn't mean exactly literally what he was saying, Richard even has to challenge us as the phrase, quote, a low opinion of himself is hard for me to swallow. This is Richard writing. No doubt I am reacting to a long history of worm theology, thinking of ourselves as worms, that has Mm -hmm. done so much damage in our day. And of course, the modern psychological concern for healthy self-esteem is an important factor also. Anyway, yeah, I think it's good to test, and maybe twos need to do this especially, but every personality who's had, who is in the evangelical church or has had some of the messaging of not accounting for yourself, that, that's actually, there's an element of pride in that, that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Jesse, what is Richard saying in this book? It's like to have an actual realistic view of yourself is the, is the doorway into humility, not thinking lower of yourself than you are, not thinking higher of yourself than you are, but actually, you know, that self, that accurate self-assessment, that self-knowledge, uh, self-awareness is extremely important to being humble and serving others. And I think twos don't take a lot of stock in becoming self-aware because they're too busy being aware of everyone else. Yeah. Let me let me ask you this. We see type twos so often do this remarkable job of loving other people well. However, I, I once heard someone say that while loving other people is hard, I mean, Jesus calls us to that all the mm-hmm. time. It's very difficult. That being said, they said, uh, loving other people is hard, learning to be loved is often even more difficult. 
do you find it difficult to receive and hold on to the love that other people have for you? A hundred percent. Yes. I mean, you're, you've got me dialed in. I'll give you a scene that paints that picture in my own life. And that was several years ago. Um, had kind of a, a, a sad end to a long relationship. And I was talking to my counselor about it and um, and I had been experiencing the same sad end <laughs> to each of my like two or three, you know, long-term relationships in succession. And at some point though, on the surface, it would look like it was their fault because of their behavior that led to the end. At some point I got to go, why the same behavior? That's, that's not indicative of who these people are. You know what I mean? And so I had to do some self-awareness where I was like, could I be playing a role in, in the, you know, inevitable demise, it seems of my long-term relationships. And so I was talking over that with my counselor and he said, you know, Andrew, I think you are really, really great at giving comfort. And he was like, I think that's one of the appeals uh, one of the things that draws people to you in all walks of life, not only in your intimate relationships, but in work relationships, all that. He said, but I don't think you really know how to receive comfort. And, and he said, if, if, if we can't, if we can only give and not receive in any relationship, then, you know, relationship is reciprocal if it's going to grow and it's going to last. And so while the other party may not know what is missing. That may be too nuanced for them to even understand. Like you're still taking out the trash. You're still making dinner. You're still, you know, taking the car in. You're still, you're still so present, you know, and you're still holding them, but are you being held, you know? And, and, and so there's a miss there over time because relationship is mutual. It has to have mutuality for it to, again, to grow and to deepen and to last. And it was something I just had never considered. And it pinged me really hard in the moment. In fact, so much so, he said, I want you when you leave this session to not be alone. And, and he said, I would like you to, is there someone in your life now that you can trust to just hold you? You know, and I said, well, the only person in my life I trust to do that right now would be my dad. And he's in Texas and I'm here in Nashville and my counselor said, well, will you let me hold you? Which was a new experience for me in counseling. And, <laughs> uh-huh. I, and, you know, he was about my dad's age and kind of tall, burly guy. So, you know, it felt safe enough, but I kind of was like, well, how does this work? You know, I didn't know. I'm going to lay down on the couch or, you know, so, <laughs> um, and he said, I just want you to stand up and embrace, you know, we're going to embrace, but I'm not going to let go. And, you know, I'm kind of always like, what the heck? So I stood up and he, he's, you know, I'm only like five, nine, he's like six, two or something. So basically my, you know, the side of my head is leaning into his chest and, um, I just, you know, started crying. And, um, the, the realization in that small exchange was I really, did not allow people. I mean, this was a, the reason it was so meaningful, impactful immediately was that it was a new experience for me. 
I've, I've spent years not letting people stand up for me. And in a way that's me not standing up for myself, you know? And I remember my dad just one time standing up for me in a relationship that hurt me real bad and not in a, in an unhealthy or bad, just in a boundary way. Right. These, my parents had these great boundaries and I chided him. I kind of scolded him for, opposing the other person's actions even though the other person's actions were opposing his son and it just it's such a gap of being able to understand how to be loved you know so i've had that stark reality presented to me and i've been trying to be vulnerable i mean twos pride themselves on being transparent and they are to a greater degree but yet i don't I mean, if I can't let someone hold me, how vulnerable am I? You know, like when I'm hurting, I can't allow someone to come alongside me, but I'll come alongside you all the day. You know, like one of my friends said, twos are the perfect hold my beer people. Like watch this, Hmm. you know? (laughs) And um, so I don't have a perfect path of how to work through that or out of that, except to simply be cognizant and then try to exercise it when the opportunity presents itself. Let someone hold you, let someone hear you, let someone, you know, love you. Here at LTN, we believe that in order to be loved, you must be known. And part of being known means understanding who you are, which is why we created Mapping Your Enneagram Story. Mapping Your Enneagram Story is a workbook to help you map your life story, and understand who you are. Using the lens of the Enneagram, you'll explore how the story you've lived has made you into who you are and why Jesus is the key to living a better story. To get your own copy of Mapping Your Enneagram Story, just go to lovethatneighborhood.org and click the store link at the top of the menu. There, you'll find Mapping Your Enneagram Story plus all our other Enneagram content. And all proceeds go directly to support Love Thy Neighborhood. So go to lovethatneighborhood.org and click store. Mapping your Enneagram story. Find the clarity you need to have meaningful, long-lasting relationships. Okay, hey, welcome back to the Enneacast. Jesse Eubanks. Lindsay Lewis. And now it's time for What's Your Number? Okay, our game today is called What's Your Number? Here's how you play. Andrew, I'm going to read you a card. Then you're going, to, you're going to rank what is on that card from 1 to 10. 1 meaning that you absolutely despise it. 10 meaning that you love it. Okay. Keep the number to yourself. Once you have your number, Lindsay and I are each going to try to guess what number we think that you okay. have ranked this thing. So we're going to take turns saying our guesses out loud. We cannot pick the same number. Uh, after we've each taken a guess, you will then reveal what number you chose. And whoever guessed the closest gets a point. Best out of five wins. Lindsay, are you ready to lose? Yes. You know, I'm totally happy about this. I'm totally happy about this because y'all get the points. 
So, you know, as a two, I'm yeah, like, yeah. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Lindsay commonly destroys me. So I'm really actually hoping I do decent. So we'll see what happens here. Okay. Uh, so we're going to do a scale of one to 10. One, you hate it. 10, you love it. Here's the first one. Telling people you're allergic to foods that you don't like. So it's not even that you actually are allergic. You're just like, oh, I'm allergic to that. I used just because you that hate in it. High school. That's brilliant. I have never I th- always told people that. I was allergic to coconut. Oh, that is awesome. <laughs> I'm going to try that out. It wasn't <laughs> until adulthood that I remembered I wasn't allergic. Oh, my gosh. That's incredible. Okay. Anyway, back to the uh, Lindsay, why don't you go first? What okay. do you think? Do you think he hates this idea or loves this idea? Um, ten is love. Yeah, ten is love. Okay, I'm going to go like seven. That's a good guess. It seems like a very like safe to move, you know? Yeah. So you don't disrupt the relationship. Yeah. yeah. It's like, well, I'm allergic. The, you can't dislike until me. Until the <laughs> truth comes out. I'm going halfway. I'm going to go five. Okay. I'm going to go five. Okay. Andrew, what's your number? One. It's so disingenuous. Oh. 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 I forgot. He has high four. We heard some of that in there. We did. <laughs> Man, turns out, we're such phonies. Turns out he has ethics. <laughs> uh, I mistook you for someone who is immoral. Uh, okay, so you you get a point. for I that. I get a point Even for that one. I really away. didn't. I really didn't earn it, but I did get a point. Okay, uh, number two, driving at the exact speed limit. Driving at the exact speed limit. I'm going to go first this time. I am going to say one. I think he hates it. I, I don't he think he's into it. He hates going the exact Yeah, having speed to go limit. the exact speed limit. Yeah. All right. I'll just go five. You're going to go five. You're, gonna just, you're hedging your bets. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Andrew, what's your number? Actually, five. I don't care. <gasps> Point for me. Mm. Yes. Mm. I, I was Tied thinking up. at first, Jesse, that I might hate that, but then I don't like rules. So that is true. Uh, so you've got me there. But. Uh, it just happens to be the nuance of the speed limit thing. I don't care. <laughs> I hate driving the speed limit. Me too. Loathe it. <laughs> really do. Loathe it. I now have one of those trackers on my car where I get a discount on my oh, car I insurance. Oh, I had that for a while, man. Yeah, so I'm like at 85% good driving and like a $40 discount. So I'm, I'm kind of into it now. I could not wait to get that thing out of my car, bro. They would triple. They would triple my insurance in one month. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I am fast and the furious all day long. Okay, uh, number three, borrowing a friend's deodorant. <laughs> I could see him being really good at letting someone borrow his deodorant. And you think he'd use it again, or you think he'd give it to me? Hey, you just you keep that. That's my gift to you. Okay, what about him borrowing a friend's deodorant? Okay, love it or hate it. Um, I'm gonna say three. That you (laughs) that's a lot. You have to admit you have a need, which is I need deodorant, and I got need to use your. I'm going. I'm gonna go two. I think less than three. So Andrew, what's your number? One. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just find a way to buy some. Yeah, that's that's yeah, or I'll go to the bathroom and wash my pits with hand soap and dry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um All right, that's another one for you, Jesse. Okay, we are on number 4, number 4, peeing in the ocean. Number 4, peeing in the ocean. Is it my turn to go yeah, first? Yeah, you can go first. Oh, now here's the question. If everyone's going, "Hey, Andrew, you peeing in the ocean?" <laughs> I don't think he's into that. No. If he could go out and be a ninja about it, I think I all day long. I think it'd be, it'd be, yeah, pee in the ocean. I'm not a ninja. I'm old now. I'm just like, hey, I'm going to go pee in the <laughs> yeah, ocean. Okay. I don't care. Who cares? It's all 
It's what? All, it's all what, Jesse? It's We're talking all, about like, it's all what? But you're talking about like being one. in the water, right? Like you're you're not yes, like okay, you're okay. in you're the not, water. You're not standing on the side. <laughs> yeah, okay. You know, <laughs> you're not doing like one of those uh, Calvin bumper stickers, oh, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. into the ocean. Okay, uh, I'm gonna go seven. I'm gonna go seven. Yeah, I'll go eight. Oh, you think he? You think he lives for it? <laughs> like it's like he can't. Guys. He cannot wait. Hey, what are you doing next week? Peeing in the ocean. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, okay, Andrew, what's your number? Ten. Yes. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think I just think I'm all about I'm all about nature anyway. It's like ah, this is See? good for somebody. Yeah. Man, you gotta let loose sometimes, Jesse. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I got a I got a, a curveball. Okay, this is one. the curveball. Okay. This is the last one. Number five, telling a stranger they have something in their teeth. Mm. Telling a stranger they have something in their teeth. I hate that. My husband, Drew, he is really good at that. Like, like he'll tell him His whole family. Yeah. Like, first meeting, they're just like, hey, by the way, got stuff in your teeth. Like, in front of everyone. Would you do that? No. You would not? No. You would let the person? Yes. Wow. 100%. You You hate people. <laughs> Or I would try to tell them later or like signal maybe. Wow. But I would not in front of a table of people be like, yo, Jesse, food in your teeth. Oh, man. Sorry. Well, I don't. We'll, we'll talk about that later. That uh, so what's your, what do you think, Andrew? Numbers? But yeah, he said he's authentic and it is helpful. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll just say five. I'm just going to go. And that way you can just, you know, lead the way, whatever. I think um, you got me second guessing. <laughs> I felt real confident until a minute ago. I'm I'm going uh, I'm going nine. I'm just going nine. nine. Okay. I think it's an act of mercy and kindness. Mm. And I think conversely, Lindsay, what you do <laughs> is cruel. Maybe I would text you. Does you would that text. Count? I'm sitting across from you, and yeah. you're gonna. Oh my god! If there were other people, I would be like, "Hey, look, yeah. there's stuff in your teeth." No, no. Okay, Andrew, for all the marbles, what's your Ten. number? Thank you. Thank yeah, I've you. got no problem you know with why? that. I think it's a good. It's a good. Why would you not? That's what I'm saying. I'm Lindsay. embarrassed on your behalf. Uh, so you would rather me look back on that and go, "Oh, my fly was down the whole time." <laughs> That's basically that like that wasn't the question. That's yeah. totally different. Yeah. Wait. Yeah. So you? <laughs> We're good. I got so many questions now. I uh, would tell you, just not like loudly. Okay. Okay. Well, Andrew, Andrew. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm glad that I can depend on you. Yeah, you got it, Jesse. <laughs> I'll text Andrew and be like, will you call Jesse and tell him? Oh, my gosh. That's you. right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, no problem with it. Uh, all right. And now it's time for 11 quick questions. Here's how this works. We're going to ask you 11 questions. You can answer with one word, one phrase, or one sentence. Uh, Lindsay, kick it off. Okay, number one, where is a place where you feel relaxed? Yeah, uh, in the Great Smoky Mountain National Parks in Mm. Autumn. Mm. Yes. Good choice. Uh, What is a food that you hate? Oh, chili mac. It's like a goulash. It's like a... Beef grossness in soup form. <laughs> uh, ironically, he's also allergic to it. It's, uh, <laughs> he's allergic to yeah. jelly bag. Okay, number three. What stirs up joy? People. What stirs up sadness? People. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
What is the last book that you read and enjoyed? Well, um, it's Let the People In, which is a biography of a Texas governor, the only female Texas governor, Ann Richards, <gasps> who died a while back. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. What is the last book that you read and you did not enjoy? I'm a compulsive reader. I have to finish a book once started. I have to, no matter how much I hate it. Now, rarely do I hate a book, so that's good. But definitively, G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy, I hate it. Mm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay, if you could own an unusual pet, what would it be? <laughs> I think they're all unusual. Um, <laughs> maybe like a like those, um, they're not a ferret, but they um, jump on. I saw them downtown in the little town I live in. It was on a guy's head. They're like little monkeys. They're popular now. They have long tails. I can't remember what they're Ooh. called. But they, they'll run. You can put them on a leash and they'll run beside you. But the, they can also literally jump from street level to your shoulder. Like a mink or something. Yeah. I guess. I, maybe that's what it is. I, they've Those become popular again. Yeah. What is your coffee shop order? Oh, it depends on where I'm at in my in the, the desire for my body to function well or not. So... <laughs> I like an iced, sugar-free vanilla latte with almond milk if I want high performance. If I'm not interested in caring, then it's just a plain iced vanilla latte with almond milk. <laughs> That's the only difference is sugar. That's it. I was like waiting for the big difference. I was like, oh, it's the same That's order. It. He's, a re he's a real rebel. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you guys have already got me cracked up. No, I can't contain it. Yeah. Okay. What is one personal vice you want to get rid of? I don't even know how to narrow that down. You sip vanilla syrup. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Actually, this will, okay, this will go to before. I don't know if this is a vice, but I hate that I have to finish books that I hate. Is that a vice? Yeah. I don't know. It's a compulsion. Yeah. It it's a compulsion. Because I'm only going to breathe so many breaths in my life. And I sit there continuing to submit myself to something I know that I'm not enjoying. And I'm not, and I'm so not enjoying it, I'm not even learning from it. What is the one thing that you would convince the world of if you could? That they're loved. What is a current desire that you have? To be able to receive love. It's hmm. a good desire. Well, Andrew, thank you so much yes. for joining us and uh, and just modeling on so many different levels, what the journey looks like for people that have got a lot of type two in their personality, yeah. what it looks like to begin to sift through motives and desires mm -hmm. and what does it mean to walk with Jesus amidst all of those things. And so it, it has just really been a joy talking with you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's been my pleasure entirely. Thanks for having me, of course. If you benefited at all, from this podcast, please help us out by leaving a review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Your review will help other people discover our show. Special thanks to our guest today, Andrew Greer. Listen, go check out Andrew's music at andrewsgreer.com. You can also check out his podcast with Mark Lowry called Dinner Conversations by heading over to dinner-conversations.com. Also, special thanks to Crosspoint Ministry, who helped train us in the Enneagram and also about desire. You can check them out at crosspointministry.com. 
This show is brought to you by Love Thy Neighborhood. If you want a hands-on experience of missions in our modern times, come serve with Love Thy Neighborhood. We offer summer and year-long missions internships for young adults ages 18 to 30. Bring social change with the gospel by working with an innovative nonprofit and serving your urban neighbors. Experience community like never before as you live and do ministry with other Christian young adults. Grow in your faith by walking in the life and lifestyle of Jesus and being part of a vibrant, healthy church. Apply now at lovethyneighborhood.org. This episode was written by Lindsay Lewis and myself. Anna Tran is our media director and producer. Music for today's episode comes from Lee Rosevere and Murphy DX. I'm Lindsay Lewis. And I'm Jesse Eubanks. Remember, the eye can see everything but itself. Find people to journey with you because you were created for community.